Ediekmo, it's Zach Shiner. It's been a little bit of time since our last episode. And I tell you, um, it's not because we haven't been working. We have been working. In fact, I am so proud to announce that we wrote a book. Yes, Janelle Badulak and I were the editors of the first ECPR textbook. We got 25 of the best authors uh, around the world, people you've heard on the podcast. We did this through ELSO and... Man, I'm kind of partial to it, but it's awesome. It's awesome. I learned so much from doing this, from putting it together, from editing it. And um, it's out. You can buy it right now. You can go to, it's on our website. It's also on Elsa website. You can get it through Lulu. It'll deliver it right to your house, no matter where you live in the world. And I would encourage you, please get it. Yeah, we don't ask for anything on EDXMO. Obviously, we don't make any money. It's a free podcast. Uh, we don't advertise on EDECMO, but if you could do me a favor, this is the one thing is go get this book because we did spend so much time on it. And I think it'll be a great resource for you, not only at home, but also in, the, in your department to use on shift if you're trying to figure something out or trying to remember something. It's a great resource. Today, we're going to jump into something that I've been, uh, I've been going down this rabbit hole for a while, but today I think I finally have sort of conquered it, and that is the economics of ECMO. I get asked this question all the time, and I, I think it is maybe the most important question right now because we have done so much to prove efficacy of eCPR, and now what we need to do is we need to prove that it's economically feasible. So today we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about what it costs to lose a life. And we're going to get uh, some, uh, there's a recent paper out in resuscitation, which is fantastic, which we're going to go through. We're also going to look at what it costs to run an eCPR program. And then the part that I just haven't been able to get to in all of my previous dealings with this and in our previous podcast where we talked about money, I got it. I got the data that says, here's what the patient spent. Here's what it costs us. Here's what we got paid. Here are the different insurances. And I know some of our European colleagues and Australian colleagues are looking at us like, you Americans, like how, why is this a huge factor for you? Well, it is a factor. And it's a factor in the U.S. for sure. And I know it's a factor in other places as well in different ways. We're going to be a little bit uh, centric towards the U.S. today, but I think this extrapolates really well to the other places. So, we have Ryan Kurt with his resuscitation paper. We have Melissa Barnes, who ECMO specialist in running of the ECMO department in Sharp Memorial. And then I'm going to come on and I'm going to share with you about this data and what I found in this deep dive throughout. And I'll give you a little inkling, just a, little, a couple pearls at the beginning. This narrative that, oh, the uninsured patients are going to sink your ship and the VV patients cost too much. You know what? It's kind of not right. It's kind of not right. In fact, getting emergency insurance for these eCPR cases is almost universal. And I, of course, I can't extrapolate this to every hospital in the U.S. or in the world. But I can tell you that some of these narratives that we've heard so far, I think they're a little overblown. So with that, let's do this. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. is Edie Ekmo. Uh, hello, Edie Ekmo. I have the privilege of being with Ryan Kurt today. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
And Ryan just published a fantastic paper in resuscitation, and it's about the costs of cardiac arrest and the economic impact of cardiac arrest, and, and a lot about the benefit, the benefit that we lose if we don't end up saving these cardiac arrests. Is that a fair synopsis, Ryan? Yeah, I think so. So I love this paper because it it gets into the weeds and it allows us to make some assessment on whether... Uh, you know, like what is the right cost? What is the right amount of resources that we should try and expend on cardiac arrest patients? And so Ryan, can you, can you just give us like an elevator speech on what the paper was about? Yeah, sure. So um, my focus is on resuscitation science, uh, specifically trying to quantify the public health and societal impact of out of hospital cardiac arrest, both from a morbidity and mortality and disease burden standpoint, but then also from an economic standpoint from cost. Um, and so this project is, has nothing to do with the cost of treatment or the costs of recovery or survivorship, um, but instead is trying to look at the loss in labor productivity um, due to uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, either from death or disability. Um, and so for that, we use the CARES database, the Cardiac Arrest Registry to Advance Survival, um, to try to figure out what is the economic productivity loss, both in a, on an annual basis, but then also on a lifetime uh, basis uh, due to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Super cool. And you referenced that gross paper, which I also think is, is a phenomenal resource for us as far as looking at this topic. Yeah. So um, I'm not an economist. Uh, so uh, for this, in order to pull labor productivity values, we use published economic data by Scott Gross, who's a well-known health economist at the CDC, uh, which provides, based on age and gender, what labor productivity estimates are, um, both on an annual basis and then also uh, for a lifetime. Okay. And so just to get to the chase, I mean, the, the, the rundown here was that it costs, pay, or costs as far as productivity lost for each out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in 2018, 50,000 on an annual basis and about 600,000 on a lifetime basis per loss. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's based off of the CARES population. Yep. Okay. So when I look at those numbers, how, how should I view that? How should I look at that and say, well, this is how much I should spend on my cardiac arrest? I think of that, I don't know the answer to that. I think uh, the goal with this project, at least from our standpoint, was beyond that to then extrapolate that out to a national level and then compare out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to other disease states. Um, and so beyond per arrest, we found that on an annual level, um, there's about $11.3 billion when you extrapolate the CARES database to the national level. Um, it's about $11.3 billion in economic productivity loss. And then on a lifetime scale, it's about 150, 150 billion um, in 2018. Um, so when we compare that to other leading causes of death, we find out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is the third leading cause of labor productivity loss. Uh, in the United States, uh, which I think is pretty significant. Uh, from our standpoint, we're looking at how does out-of-hospital out of cardiac arrest compare to others from an advocacy standpoint for more research funding um, and more public resources. Um, so I think uh, this is just another paper to look at or describes that really the societal impact is much larger um, than we previously thought um, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Okay, so much to unpack right there. So when I see this kind of data, I see heart disease, number one, $20 billion. Uh, this out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, third at $10 billion. 
Is there really separation between those two? Meaning that heart disease obviously is a major factor in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And how do we how do we kind of isolate those two terms? So this is uh, the most common reviewer comment that I get anytime we submit papers. Um, and the it commonly is thought that well, well, cardiac arrest is the final common pathway of death, right? It's not its own disease state, but it's really sort of this umbrella. Um, but as we know that, uh, not all cardiac arrest is due to MI or heart disease. Um, and then it goes beyond that where we know that if we just simply look at cardiac arrest as this umbrella term that sort of goes and covers multiple disease states, and that really splinters funding away from out of possible cardiac arrest and maybe part of the reason why, um, funding is so low. When you look at, um, or sort of NIH funding for autopossible cardiac arrest to other uh, disease states or common causes of death, the, it's orders of magnitude less. And it may be because we don't view it as its own disease state, but instead that um, it sort of is this, uh, again, one final common pathway of death that we're studying everything else, uh, but not really studying cardiac arrest itself. Okay. So when I see that num- those numbers, I have to understand that within that heart disease $20 billion, there is some factor of that that is related to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But the main take-home is, hey, this is a lot of money. Like We spend a lot of money on this, even if it is more of an umbrella term. Certainly. Yeah. There's, uh, there's definitely overlap here. And if you say like, maybe, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but let's say 50% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is uh, um, sort of overlaps with heart disease, that's still $5 billion. It's more than stroke. That's more than sepsis. So there is certainly overlap, um, but I think that at least we would argue that it's it's worth presenting this separately um, to just show what the magnitude of the burden of disease really is. All right, I'm going to jump in really quick here. Ryan and I had some great conversations and side tangents in this, uh, but I just wanted to go through, kind of piece some stuff together. In this study, they excluded pediatrics, they excluded patients that never got EMS-initiated CPR, and so that is an underestimate of the absolute productivity loss uh, as a result of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They also did not include the costs of CPC three to five patients. So if you are pegged and tricked and you live in a skilled nursing facility the rest of your life and it costs a million dollars, that wasn't included. So some overestimation and some underestimation of the true cost. But let's get back into this and really talk about some numbers to finalize this part. Okay, so if we just take the data at face value, which we just said that it's not, but maybe make slight overcorrection, undercorrection, at 650,000 per life saved, that is a, you know, a reasonable goal, I think, from, a, from an economic standpoint for our, our system. So I think that one of the things that we are, we are now in the stage of, because of Yiannopoulos, because of Prague and all these places that are doing great stuff that shows, hey, this therapy works. I think we're into the next phase, which is how do we do this in a streamlined economic fashion that can get the survivors, but not cost a gazillion dollars? Yeah, certainly. And um, I, so I, I think that is the, the big question is what is the total cost of novel interventions, including eCPR? Um, and then using the data here, you could then compare and to see, well, well, how much money potentially could be saved either in a year or over the course of, of a lifetime. Knowing that these are likely underestimates on a national level, um, but does not include the cost of care. So 
I love this kind of research. I mean, I, this research is not done enough. And honestly, right now, it's exactly what we need. It's this kind of stuff that says, you know, I can go to my county EMS director or anyone can go to their county EMS director and says, look, in Minneapolis, you can save more lives, a lot more lives if it's done well. But the, the next step is to show them the next set of data, which says not only can we do it well, but it's not going to break your system. Mm-hmm. If we do all these interventions, if we set up the whole system, because as we're learning more and more, the system is so key. It's not just who can cannulate. It's not just the ICU docs that take care of it. It's not just the cath lab. It's the entire system. It's the EMS. It's the coordination. And those things cost money. And mm-hmm. the question is how much money? And does it make sense from, from each city's standpoint to move forward with these types of programs? Yeah. And I think that this is sort of the, the questions you're asking um, sort of leads to the next step for a study like this um, is to now incorporate the cost of care for different things um, and to see how do these numbers change and what number or, or how much do we have to if we increase survivors, survivors by 5%, by 10%, um, what's the impact on these numbers? All right. Great conversation with Ryan. A couple things that we talked about that aren't mentioned here. And this is the non-market cost. This is a fascinating thing. And it's in the gross paper. I'm going to put it in the show notes so you can look through it in a couple of graphs there. It shows that the non-market costs of uh, or non-market loss from having cardiac arrest is significant, meaning that the 80-year-old cares for his wife or the wife cares for the husband or cares for other people. And so those economic losses as a result of that person not able to care for these, their significant other are significant. And it, what's what's fascinating here is that there's a, a little asymptote, like the the total yearly production per per person goes you know up into your 30s and then kind of in your mid 40s starts to go down and you actually uh, go a little bit lower than the person that's in the 70s and 80s and so when we start thinking about these patients that are 80 and oh they don't really have any uh, societal benefit or whatever you want to say I'm, I'm not saying that that's the exact words, but they do. They really do have a significant societal benefit and they have a significant economic uh, cost and loss associated with that. So uh, with that, let's get into a little bit more specific about ECMO and what the costs of these eCPR patients and VV cases are. And with that, I'm going to introduce Melissa Barnes. She is the manager uh, and ECMO specialist at Sharp Memorial Hospital. And we're going to dive into how we can wrap our hands around the costs associated with eCPR. Melissa, can you take us through a little bit about what ECMO costs? Yeah. So ECMO is quite... uh it's a big production, so to speak. We have a lot of moving factors that are involved with ECMO. For one, we have the capital costs and that's how much a circuit costs, the equipment itself, all the capital that's involved. And believe it or not, each pump is about $200,000 is what you're looking at just for the equipment alone. That's not including the circuit, the cannulas, all the other that's involved. That is just the circuit or the pump itself. So when we have that and we have limited resources of those, you really have to think about where are we now? How many patients do you have to support? And then you have to kind of capitalize on that, where you are now, where you want to go. And people have heard me say that before. 
Then we have the runtime. And this is where it's tricky because we have VA ECMO um, that hopefully we try to get them off in a shorter period of time. So the longer amount of time that they're on ECMO support, then that's where our costs really goes up from there because we're treating the patient in an ICU setting. Okay, so that that is important. And I think this we're going to get into this as far as VV versus VA versus eCPR and total run times. So we're talking about some upfront costs, a couple hundred thousand for the machine. As far as personnel, as far as human resources, can you give us an estimate to, to start a program? So what we typically want is, of course, a, a leader. They want a medical director, and that's per ELSO guidelines. They want the, the medical director who's going to be heading this up and helping with the peers for cannulation purposes. You need RT support, ECMO specialists, perfusionists involved, and then, of course, getting your bedside RNs um, to that knowledge base that they need in order to help maintain these patients at bedside. So the resources for personnel is huge. And then you have all of the medications, because at the end of the day, I can say coming from bedside as a nurse, we're treating the patient first. And the pump is just another avenue of how we're treating the patient. And with their underlying issues, if they're on INO, which is a cost factor, having an ICU bed itself. Um, now, back in the day when I was at bedside, that was like $5,000 just for an ICU bed a day. And that's not including their drips. That's not including INO and ventilator and all of that kind of stuff. So it, as you can tell, it quickly adds up where it can be pretty substantial as far as the costs go. Okay. Is there a way that we can we can tell people, we can estimate to people like what to just get this program started? Uh, what what is the cost from a human standpoint? Ooh, from a human standpoint, you're you're expected to have at least a million dollars to go into it, right? At least um, because you really a lot of centers will have a cardiovascular surgeon who's going to head up the ECMO program. Um, some centers have critical care um, pulmonology that's involved as far as directing ECMO programs, but typically you need a cardiovascular surgeon that champion that's going to be on twenty four seven to take these calls and be be able to to jump in when the need arises. Okay, so we know that the the cost, the upfront cost, is is high. We also though have to recognize that there's some uh, collateral benefits. So you cross train these nurses, you cross train all of these docs. They now have a skill set that they didn't have before, and so even on non ECMO patients, you now have a level of sophistication that you previously didn't have. And so right. while there is some human cost to this, and you may need to add some more FTEs onto your hospital if you're going to um, go down this road of, of having an ECPR or ECMO program, there are definitely collateral benefits with it. Definitely. So now let's just talk about the per patient cost. So uh, in the, let's talk about VV ECMO first, because this is okay. where we, we, we've done podcasts on this before, as far as saying, like, should we be shutting down ECPR programs in lieu of having VV cases? Tell me about both from a cost standpoint, as well as a charge standpoint, how does this play out? Our, well, what we've seen with COVID, uh, VV ECMO definitely has a long, longer run times. And that's where your costs start to go up. You know, our VA ECMO, I believe in times past with this, the setting I'm in now, it was about an average of 72 hours. Um, that was kind of the turnaround time. 
unfortunately, with COVID, it, we don't know how long they're going to be running. And I can tell you our average has gone up to 16,000 hours based on our run, um, our, our cases that we have. And that's pretty substantial when your run time was maybe 3,000 you know, 3, 3, to 5,500 of hours. And now we're running at 16,000. Um, that's where your costs go up. So when it comes to BV ECMO, definitely it's harder to, to just rebuild from that to gain. Um, we've done great here in that we've been able to ambulate patients and that has helped them to get stronger and get well. BVA ECMO, we usually have a plan B. You know, we have durable, other durable devices, transplant or um, STEMI, something else to kind of help facilitate these patients. But uh, BV ECMO, there's really no path out except for a transplant. They just have to recover and it's a slower transition with that. So we're looking at similar initiation costs. I mean, we've got to put in the cannulas. We've got to right. use the machine. Uh, we've got now a prolonged ICU stay. So we've got, you know, 14, 21, a month, six months uh, right. on, on circuit. And so that's where these costs at 5,000 and probably, you know, much higher than that per day uh, ICU stay, plus all the, the other factors and costs that are included in that. Um, we're talking about, we, you can spend easily a million, $2 million right there. Absolutely. So talk to me about, at least in the United States, and this will have to extrapolate to our audience uh, in other places. The hospital gets the initiation fees for ECMO. We're talking about just VV. They get the initiation fees. They get the daily management fees. How do they get compensated for these prolonged stays? Well, it's interesting, believe it or not, out of all of the other um, mechanical circulatory support devices, ECMO gets the highest reimbursement rate. And that's one of the reasons why we're starting to see a lot of, not just because of COVID, but even before COVID, we started seeing all of these hospitals wanting to get on ECMO bandwagon. And it is great to have for TAVR programs or um, just for cardiovascular services, things of that sort. But it is very highly, um, you know, valuable as far as reimbursement goes. So a lot have wanted to, to kind of hop on that. Thanks. Thanks to Melissa Barnes. She's amazing. Just uh, so much knowledge, so much experience, uh, and has really driven our program at Sharp to a whole new level. All right, final little section here. Let's look at my deep dive into this economic data. Now, I will tell you, uh, it feels just kind of wrong to talk about money and all this. And I'll tell you, I'm the first person, like, all I want to do is go out and save some people's lives. And I want to save the most amount of people's lives. And I want to do it in the best way. But to make this go, to make this work in counties, to make it work in your, in your hospital, in your city, uh, we, need to, we need to engage this conversation. And I think we need to also stamp out some of the false narratives that have come because they permeate. And so I would encourage you to do exactly what I just did, which is go find some data. Go find some data for your hospital, for other hospitals, whatever you can get so that you have, so you're educated in this, this conversation that commonly occurs. So the narrative that, that the eCPR patient that comes in that's unfunded, that doesn't have insurance, that that is a total loss for the hospital my look at this is that that's not true. In fact, almost every single one of these patients gets emergency insurance through whatever state programs that you have, and so that they do get that full DRG3. 
So DRGs, that's just, just a recollection. So remember a couple years ago, we had this huge battle, right? DRG3 was what ECMO was. It got downgraded. And so we were going to lose 80% of the value of uh, the compensation for ECMO for Medicare rates. Well, we fought hard. We sent letters and, and thankfully the community stepped up and we were able to change this back to DRG3. So currently ECMO, ECPR, DRG3, this is also for VV ECMO. It gets you about $118,000 at Medicare rates. And so for these short stay ECPR cases, like that's plenty of money. That is plenty of money to make this not only float, but also be economically advantageous to the hospital. All right, so point number one, make sure you know that this insurance, these uninsured patients don't necessarily sink your ship. Now for VV ECMO, we've looked at this and said, okay, so do these super long runs also sink the hospital? And that narrative is a little bit harder to, to come by, but I think that narrative is also false. There are daily charges that you can assess on these patients. Now, do they make up for the cost of that? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. So that, that question I think you do need to assess with your hospital a little bit better. But it is not like you only get $118,000 for these three-month VV ECMO stays. All right, so that's point number two. Point number three is that we have to really compare VV to eCPR. We have to now look at these runs and say, not only from a cost standpoint is the, is the hospital able to sustain this, but is it the best thing for the most number of people? And that's where I think things are more advantageous to eCPR. We know that if you've, if you've been following this just a couple of weeks ago, we'll probably do this paper in future ED ECMO podcasts, but the Lancet paper came out that showed that the survival from COVID VV ECMO is pretty bad. In fact, it got worse from what our, these initial papers that came out and showed that we were getting you know, 70% survival from, from VV ECMO for COVID. That's not what this most recent paper says. The ELSO data paste, it says that this is around 45%. Like efficacy about the same as eCPR. So you're telling me a patient that's got pulmonary disease from a respiratory virus has the same survival as someone who has a cardiac arrest and gets put on VA ECMO. Well, that's what the data is showing. And so that's not even looking at the, at the, the absolute reduction of risk, right? We know that some of these patients with COVID are going to survive even though they got, it doesn't even matter if they got VV ECMO, they're going to survive anyway. But people who have eCPR had downtimes of, a, of an hour and they're getting put on the machine, like their survival rate is less than 1%. So absolute reduction in risk as a result of the intervention is highly in favor of eCPR. And we should, we should argue that if you're trying to do the most good for the most people, that we need to save a pump for patients that are in cardiac arrest. Okay, last point, maybe the one I'm most excited about, is if we put all this together, if we take Ryan Kurtz's paper that says there is $638,000 worth of economic loss for each out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and we combine it with what were the costs of each of our eCPR patients, what, were the, what was the reimbursement as well for each of these eCPR patients, we see each of them came out less than that $638,000. So you could argue, understanding all the limitations of the study and all the limitations of this economic data, that eCPR is an advantageous entity for society. All right, 
So I think we threw a lot at you this this month. Hopefully you have a better idea of what the economics of ECMO are and that you can come to your hospital and say, hey, here are the things. I want, I sh- I want to take a look at the data. Before we start making assessments and, and, and making big decisions based on uh, imperfect data or even data that's not known, like that happens. If you don't even know the data, how can you make a decision? Uh, I think you, you are now empowered to do that. And with that, signing off.